0: Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. hope everyone had a great weekend and is having a great summer. Now, I know some of you are back to work already, but many others are still enjoying the summer months, so whatever is happening for you here in early August, I hope it's going well for you. I was home over the weekend, but I'll be back on the road today, and for the next two weeks, I start in Tumwater, Washington tomorrow for a session on grading, then it's off to various spots throughout California before finishing up in Iowa on August 21st. As I said last time, it is definitely the crazy season. Uh, Upcoming events to remind you of, if you want to get a jump on some PD this fall, grading from the inside out, that two-day training will be in Jonesboro, Arkansas, September 25th and 26th, Charleston, South Carolina, October 11th and 12th, and St. Louis, Missouri, facilitated by Natalie Bartabasso, that'll be December 6th and 7th. Uh, The standards-based learning and action uh, two-day training, that'll be in Seattle, Washington, October 16th and 17th. I've got links in the show notes for all of those events. Also, a reminder that my latest book, Redefining Student Accountability, is out. It's available. Uh, I've got a link in the show notes for that as well if you want to check that out. And one scheduling note, uh, the next episode will be in three weeks, uh, August 28th, and then we'll go every other week from there heading into the fall. Okay, thanks for tuning in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. And of course, a big thank you to longtime listeners. I really do appreciate all of you. This week, my guest is my friend, Cale Burke, Cale uh, and I talk about why it's important for leaders to plan for impact rather than just plan for change. In an assessment corner, I want to remind you that determining your assessment's purpose is a crucial first step in making sure we design our assessments well and we use the resulting evidence appropriately. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. conversation with Kale Burke is coming up but first in this week's mindset minute and I'm going to try to keep it down to a few minutes here I know last week I went a little bit long and I promised these to be brief and I'm working on it you got to be patient with me (laughs) this week's mindset minute I want to share with you a mantra that I've lived by for probably 15 to 20 years now and I have to give credit where credit is due it's an expression I learned from my sister but I've applied it to so many aspects of my life. Now, let me set the scene for you before I give you the mantra. Imagine you're headed to the mall or some other place that's really busy and parking is hard to come by. Now, we've all been there, driving around in circles, looking for a spot. It gets frustrating, no doubt, but not anymore. <laughs> I remember driving to the mall with my sister one time and I was, I was just going to succumb to the busyness of the mall and park somewhere near the back. And my sister interjected and said, absolutely not, no way, drive up front. And I said to her, seriously, we're never going to find a parking spot near the entrance. And she said, yes, we will. There's always a spot up front for a winner. So I drove to the front entrance of the mall and within minutes, someone pulled out of a parking spot and we were one row from the front. That's the mantra. There's always a spot up front for a winner. So I started to try it. Another example for a good five year stretch or so, I took my son skiing every Saturday. He would ski in his freestyle program, he was in his course, and I would ski with my friends. Now, Apex Mountain, which is near Penticton, is if you know it, you know it's always busy every Saturday. So about 15 minutes before we arrived at the ski hill, I would say to Adrian, I would say, okay. Let's envision a parking spot up front. And we did. I'd say out loud in the car, or sometimes even in my head, I would just kind of keep repeating it there's always a spot up front for a winner. Parking in the back is for suckers. Now, did it work every single time? No, it didn't. But did it happen the majority of the time and more than you might think? Absolutely. Now, did it sometimes take five minutes? Of course, look, I'm not a wizard that can just make things instantly happen. You know, I know it might sound hokey to some of you. That's okay, to each their own. But I dare you to try it. I've applied this mindset to so many aspects of my life. If I ever have a tight connection in an airport or something like that, I'll say to myself, there's always a spot up front for a winner. And it really is just an expression of, of basically saying everything works out for me. It's become so habitual that I just keep putting that energy out there whenever I'm in a tight spot or things feel a little uncertain or a little stressful. I dare you to try it. But here's the key. You can't just say it. You have to believe it. You have to feel it. If you feel it, then you really do believe it. And if you believe it, you're gonna be surprised at how often things unfold exactly as you need them or want them to. Remember, there's always a spot up front for a winner. (laughs) Joining me this week is my friend, Cale Burke. Kale has been an educator for 25 years in the public school system. Cale's been a teacher, he's been a coach, he's been a high school principal, and most recently in the system, he was the head of innovation. Currently, Cale helps districts and schools and industry leaders answer the question, what is our observable impact? And the focus of observable, observable changes in practice that make the difference for students and for educators in the classroom. Kale is the co author of PLC 2.0, Collaborating for Impact in Today's Schools, the PLC 2.0 Toolkit, Changing Change Using Learner Centered Design, and now his latest work, Navigating leader, the Leadership Drift with Dr. Michael McDowell. Kale is an incredibly busy man. He travels everywhere. I'm very familiar with that lifestyle for sure, but uh, love to have my friend on the podcast. Kale, welcome.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, you've been the uh, the inspiration for becoming the the road warrior, and <laughs> and I just want to say, Tom, it's it's great to to finally be on the show. Uh, I've certainly been uh, I've known you for years, uh, and and been able to and lucky enough to follow your career. So to be able to sit with you today and hang out is uh, is a real pleasure for me.
0: Oh well, thank you for that, Kale. I, I you know have a tremendous amount of respect for you, for your work. I remember the first time I walked into your office and. Think it was somewhere around 2011 or 2012 my daughter was at a dance competition in kamloops and, yeah. and came up to south kamloops high and right. just known each we just known each other on twitter and yep. and uh just sat down and had a conversation and and got to know each other personally and uh and it's been great and you're traveling a lot i'm traveling a lot so we don't stay in touch always but uh it's just great to have another friend out there who understands Absolutely. the road warrior lifestyle <laughs> uh, yes. so let's um, let's jump in and, and before you know I gave people the highlights in the introduction but let's let's talk about your career before we dig into the substance of our conversation. maybe f- for listeners who aren't familiar with you, uh, highlight the professional journey so far where did you start uh, your career give us a little bit more detail about your teaching career, leadership career and maybe some of the pivotal moments along the way that kind of shaped you as an educator.
1: Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, you you said it. I'm a recovering high school principal, <laughs> um, and but prior to that, I was uh, by, I was down in, in our neck of the woods, the South Okanagan. Uh, I, I started teaching in uh, in Osoyoos, British Columbia, mm-hmm. and that's sort of where I started to hear a little bit more about you. I know you were teaching up in Penticton, just north of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was lucky enough to, to work with a friend of both of ours, which is Marty Lewis. Mm -hmm. And uh, Marty, I think as a teacher really gave me some thoughts and ideas about the whole idea about PLC, about, Mm -hmm. you know, collaborating as teachers, because as a, as a new teacher, you're just scrambling, right? Trying to figure out what's what and all those things. So by, by having someone like Marty, I think that was really pivotal for me at the start of my career is to get into this idea of, of collaborating, which was great, but shortly after that, I um, I went into administration and I moved into uh, to be an assistant principal and then a principal. Um, probably a little bit too young in some ways uh, because it was just uh, you, you as a principal. I felt like I had to to know everything and and uh, to be a little bit smarter than I, of course, than I actually was. Um, but I think what was um, really cool is I spent some time in northern BC and then and then I came back down to to Southern British Columbia again and started doing some um, some work where where you and I had reconnected at South chem mm-hmm. and and I think during that time, um, as a leader, I really started to think a lot more about about the experience of, of teaching and, and thinking about my own experience. So we did a lot of work around professional learning communities, which um, a- at one point we, we were in, named a model PLC school, whatever that sort of meant at the time. It was quite neat uh, mm-hmm. to, to have that happen. Right. But I also um, and I leaned a lot on on people like yourself and a couple of others because one of the things that we had to do when we were there is really start to look at, at grading and assessment practices, and I think that um, that really shaped me as an individual because I didn't realize how difficult. Change would be, and and so I think what what that really led to for me was thinking about a couple of things. We we did make some significant changes when it came to to grading and assessment. We did make some significant changes when it come it came to you know sort of teacher practice. But but it made me think a little bit more about were, were people being compliant or were people actually digging in and engaging to this? And and I think that was really important for me because I moved from my principal position to a a district level position around innovation. And it allowed me to kind of get outside of the classroom. I had this really cool thing where I got to go to the business innovation factory in Rhode Island and be with real innovators. Like I think I was one of Two educators out of five hundred that were there, mm-hmm. and it just made me realize that there's a different way to approach change, and it was this human centered approach. So, mm-hmm. so I think that's what's kind of shaped me over the the, the course of my career is is having a, a great initial leader like Marty, um, also having um, engaged with some some really big and, and neat initiatives, but also really understanding the the human side of of teaching, learning, and and ultimately of changing practice. So that's kind of my trajectory that landed mm-hmm. me and gave me the opportunity to write a few things along the way
0: absolutely the uh the, the human you can never go wrong with the human-centered approach which you know in the work that i do around assessment and grading for sure kale it's very easy to slip once something i often say to people is look assessment and grading is not just a clinical exercise in number crunching there's a person on the other end of that experience and so continuing to, I guess, rehumanize assessment, rehumanize change, keeping the humanity in there and being human focused as opposed to thing focused or process focused is, uh, is never a, it's never a bad thing for sure. I want to, um, I want to now talk about leadership and, and maybe at this point, just talk about leadership from a, a view from 30,000 feet. And then I want to dig into this idea of observable impact and give you a chance sure. to talk a little bit about that. But from your perspective, when we think about leadership, um, you know, what do you what do you see as the most important or impactful habits or characteristics of influential leaders like why are some leaders more effective than others from your perspective
1: you know if you would have asked me that a few years ago i think i might have had a bit of a different answer but i think covid really sort of discombobulated that for me because you know i haven't been a principal now since i think i want to say 2015 or 2016 and and things have changed dramatically through that and and I think what I've I've started to realize is is that principals are juggling leaders district leaders are juggling so many different things right now that it's kind of hard to distill it down to what's that one thing but but I think for me and and you know I'm lucky Tom because I get to spend time with leaders every day and and one of the things that I notice is is that the the truly impactful leaders are the ones that are willing to confront practice And, and it's not just other people's practice, it's their own practice. Certainly when it comes to something, and you just mentioned this, that is as personal as assessment, Mm -hmm. it's not easy to, confront that practice. In fact, right. it's far easier, isn't it? Just to kind of <laughs> keep things smooth sailing. Yeah. And, yeah. and and I think, you know, uh, Ron Edmonds, you know, years ago, the effective uh, schools guru talked about this idea that we already know more than enough to educate our kids. It's sort of whether we're willing to do something about it. That's the mm-hmm. key issue. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's to me, I think the thing that I've noticed is that those leaders that are really willing to be able to engage in the process of, of confronting practice mm-hmm. and co-create to me in many ways what the observable vision for X is, whether yeah. it's assessment or, or you know PBIS or whatever mm-hmm. initiative we're throwing in place. Right. I think that willingness to be able to say, let's create the vision of what it looks like, but then we have to use that vision to start to assess mm-hmm. where we're at. That to me is a real key that I've noticed is those those leaders out there that are willing to say, um, I'm willing to confront not just the practice that I see, but my own practice as a leader.
0: Yeah. When you think about, uh, let's let's go on that tangent a little bit. If I'm a classroom teacher and I'm aspiring to move into a leadership role, um, and let's say it's, it is an assistant principal job, it doesn't yeah. have to be. There's a lot of ways to lead in yes. the school as a department chair, as an instructional coach. There's lots of ways to lead. But let's just say I'm a teacher who who wants to aspire into becoming an assistant principal in a school, um, would, you, would your advice to them be to also, maybe with a little bit more finesse, be willing to confront practice that way? Or would you, would you have different advice for a classroom teacher? Because it is colleague to colleague, we want to be mindful of relationships and things like that. So what would your advice be to a classroom teacher aspiring into say that formal leadership role in administration?
1: Well, I think it's, you know, in in some ways it's a, and I I don't mean this in a generic way, but I think it can be a bit of a ubiquitous approach. Meaning Mm -hmm. I think we can start to think if we can start to think a little bit more about impact. Mm-hmm. before we think about action. I think yeah. right now we're, we're running all over the place, try, and I, I mean it with the most respect to people, but we're there are so many different initiatives that fall down onto it. It's like snowflakes falling onto our mm-hmm. desks and we're, mm-hmm. we're constantly thinking action, action, action. I wonder for, for some of our people that are thinking about going into leadership, if, if we really start to just press pause for a moment and go, so if we were doing this well, what would we see from our students? But mm-hmm. it, there's a, there's there's a couple other elements though. It's not just what would we see from our students. It's what would we see from our educators. And I'm a big fan of of Richard Elmore and his concept mm-hmm. of task predicts performance, right? Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> so really starting to just think a little bit more about <clears throat> we're not doing literacy or or you know doing SEL or do, it's if we were to do these things well. I wonder what I would see in my classroom. Mm-hmm that would tell me that we're making a difference. And I think that's a way that we can start to have some of those collegial conversations right. is is really taking that, asking that naive question with our colleagues, which is to say, geez, if if we were in, if we were really focused on resilience, if, if students were being resilient, what would that actually look like? Right. And what would be some of the things that we could do to make that happen at a higher frequency? I think that drops that sort of uh, almost the you versus me or my right. practice is right. better than yours. Thinking mm-hmm. a little bit more from inquiry based. where i I like to to have Mm -hmm. new leaders think about
0: i like that idea of impact for sure because i think you're right there's times we get on the implementation you know train and and we're just what are we implementing what are we doing but until you recognize the impact and the and that impact what i would assume would come from recognizing a problem of practice or some issue that you have to address and then what would we see and sometimes we get caught in caught up in the minutiae it's like we're looking for positive outcomes or impact on students We don't have to sit here and debate intrinsic versus extrinsic we don't have to debate those things let's look at the outcome for this for the learner i really like that so let's pick up on that as far as leaders are concerned because i think you have said and written that leaders need a vision and a plan for change but the but it's the plan for impact so picking up on this idea that we need to think about impact how do i as a leader if i'm a principal or i'm a school leader in, in whatever position i'm in how do i actually plan for impact like walk us through the process in maybe in some detail it's one thing to say this is what we want to have happen but how would i know what kind of impact or what the target might be or how would i see the residual effect of what we're doing so walk us through that whole process and take your time with that
1: yeah what a what a great question i think you know, I I look at vision statements, and Tom, you and I have had these plastered all over our buildings, and they're on, yep. they used to be on the faxes. No one uses oh, yeah. faxes anymore, but we'd have all these Back things, the right? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Right. And they, they they always use this language that that anyone who has a civilian that's a significant other was always going like, "What are we talking about in education?" <laughs> you know, and and heaven forbid when the four C's, five C's, I don't know how many. We got up to about eight, 10, 12 C's at some yeah, point, but yeah, yeah. but in the end it was really difficult to know what that looked like. So I think mm-hmm. the first thing that leaders need to do, and I and we talk about this in Drift, is Co is our friend. And I can say a, a big flaw of, of mine early on as a leader, Tom, was Was I tried to do a lot of this stuff myself. I Mm -hmm. felt like other people were busy, that I was supposed to be the, you know, the educational leader in the building. Mm -hmm. And because teachers were so busy doing the the business of, of teaching and learning in their classrooms that I should do this stuff myself. And and so, as a leader, I think the first step that we need to do is really co-create what it looks like in the classroom with teachers, mm-hmm. because they're, our teachers are the ones that are closest to the what's happening in the school. We can then start to build some of that empathy. But so, step one, if we were to use something, and I'll just take uh, something like uh, inclusion, just as you know, something okay. that we see in almost every vision statement is we want to be inclusive, and 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 it's a, it's the the right thing to do. But unfortunately, for for many of us, we have a pretty wide-ranging set of definitions of what inclusion is. And so, you know, to me, if I'm a leader and we're working with our staff and we want to talk about in, inclusion, I think the first thing that we need to think about is, is if we were doing inclusion really well, and I'm being general, but yeah. what would we see in the classroom? And an example might be that, you know, we would see all students being able to start and complete a task let's just use that as an example it's something sure. we could observe we can and it doesn't mean it's the same task but we would see all students doing this by sitting with the staff and starting to realize like what are some of the things we would actually notice in the classroom we then have to think okay if we want all students to start and, and complete the task what are the things that educators would need to do to ensure that all students can and want to start and complete the task? And this is where some of your work is is quintessential. It's now we're starting to think of you know we need to assess where kids are actually at right. so that we can see where they need to go next, mm-hmm. and then we start to move into that student, that's educator. And the third piece in this sort of 3D high-res picture is working with our staff to say, okay, well, what would be the types of tasks, activities, and assessments that we would see in the classroom? Well, they might be tasks that allow mm-hmm. students to demonstrate a standard or a learning target in more than one way well what we're doing with our staff is not only are we co-creating that common vision with each other but we're also it's a formative tool for the leader to say hmm Mm -hmm. we're actually struggling with defining what inclusion is i wonder what Mm -hmm. learning that we need to do next so step one is really co-creating the vision but then step two is then using the vision to confront the practices in our classroom. I think a lot of times we make the vision and it's sort of beer and cake and celebration <laughs> afterwards, but it's quite different to use that vision to go into the classroom and say, okay, if if we want all students to start and complete the task, if we want our teachers to be using formative assessment tools to help design tasks, and if we want tasks that actually are give kids multiple opportunities and different ways to demonstrate a target, is this happening in the class? And it's not to make us feel bad, It's actually to drive the learning that we need to do next, which is the third step. So it's creating the vision, using the vision, now thinking about the learning. And I think what leaders can do in that situation is, is we ask teachers to differentiate for students all the time. But my wonder is, is how often do we differentiate for adults? And I mean, you know, Mike, Michael Fullan talked about sometimes we have too much of a moral imperative. And I understand that we, we want all this to happen. But I remember as a teacher, I had all sorts of things happening, but if someone could have said, "Hey, Kale, here's a here's a first step for you to take," I think that would have really helped me. The fourth step, then, to me, is what I call DIOD, which is design, mm-hmm. implement, observe, and document. Not BYOB. I just want to be clear. <laughs> but but I think we have to start to look at at this as a bit of an experiment. You know, sometimes we talk about <clears throat> um, keep learning the constant and make time the variable. I think we can also push on that to say, let's keep the learner the constant and make our approach the variable and see Mm -hmm. what works with our kids and we design that we implement that but i'm a big key for me is the observing what's happening in real time we talk about collecting when then patterns when i did this as a teacher this is what i noticed with this group of students or whatever Mm -hmm. that looks like and then the documentation piece now is think of chip and joanna Gaines, right Mm the best part of the fixer-upper is seeing the development and that last five minutes when we can actually see the house transformation. That documentation to me is the dopamine a lot of the times for our teachers when they can see, wow, we are making a difference. And then the last piece is really being able to connect our uh, actions to impact and share. And teaching is such a lonely profession and leadership is such a lonely profession. Yet we're all seem we all seem to be working on similar things. How do we start to take what we've learned, the impact that we've had, and share that with colleagues? So it's really it's first of all, it's co-create the vision. We use the vision to drive our learning, DIOD, and then finally we start to share the the, the stories of impact with each other, so that we can work a little smarter and not harder.
0: I love that. Um, you know, frustrations over the years about goals and targets that are so vague and so general and people arguing about well not everything can be measured if there's no measurability we will never know and again it doesn't have to be a spreadsheet doesn't have to be a number but we've got to have some measurability and specificity around outcomes otherwise we'll never know if the efforts we're putting forth and the and not just that it's the money that's being put forth into <sighs> pd and training and initiatives and all of those the resources. we're doing so to me the idea of planning for impact i think is very smart and and probably something we should have been doing all along but uh you know take someone like you to come along and say hey maybe we should turn the lens around and not say what are we what are we uh, implementing we should talk about like what impacts are we having and how are we measure that you know it's just there's things that Um, I learned years ago about something referred to as explanatory fictions, which are these labels we often put on, this is a bit of a tangent, but we put labels on kids, right? So we'll say, oh, this student is hyperactive. Well, hyperactivity is not measurable in the sense that how would you know if you're having any positive impact? But you might say, you know, starting off the student initiates three tasks within a 20 minute period of time. And if we could reduce that, then we've got two tasks within a 30 minute period of time. And now you've got measurability around that. And it used to frustrate me around developing IEPs and stuff like that, because the goals were not specific enough. So Kale, I'm with you on that, the idea of of planning for impact for sure. I wanna talk about this other concept that I thought was really, really interesting. And I want you to expand on this, which is I I know you often say and have written that leaders need to lead from the middle. Um, So what does that mean? What does it mean to lead from the middle?
1: Well, I'm I'm glad you called me on that because leading from the middle, I think, is one of those things. It can be another one of those ethereal concepts, right? And <laughs> that's right. And and so I asked the I question, think, Kale. Uh, and I think it's really <laughs> important that we we define what that looks like. And I, yeah. I think this is the idea behind drift, right? And yeah. I think the, the reason we chose the the idea of drift is I think it can resonate with leaders where sometimes we drift from what we're supposed to be, we know we're supposed to be doing. And I always smile whenever we're with, with leaders, and I know you are too. You know, everyone has that sort of instructional leader somewhere in their job description, right. but it's somewhere yeah. behind private investigator and counselor <laughs> and referee and and social media monitor, right? Yeah, yeah. But 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 in the end, I think so. So the idea of drifting, I think we can kind of get our heads around this concept, but yet we still have to define what that is. And I, I just think what what it really means is is there there's some. To me, what I like to think of is there's some gaps, and and Michael and I wrote about this in the book, and and there's sort of two gaps that we talk about, and one of the gaps is this 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 tragic gap, which is the gap between our current reality and a, and a possible future, and I think sometimes when we drift, sometimes if we drift too far into our current reality, we become that that corrosive cynic right where you yeah. know we start to blame everything around us and blame covid and blame our staff and and wish that things would be a little better but but the other way that we can drift is is too much into that almost irrelevant idealism right that you know all of our children are going to be you know at grade level by next week and those Mm -hmm. sorts of things and that that's equally as frustrating for folks and what what we really mean is is really sort of staying in between both of those 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 poles and I'll talk about that a little bit more in just a sec but the other gap that that we I think that's really relevant to us is this concept of the knowing doing gap or the improvement gap and I think that too often, if we we stay too much in that sort of knowing piece, we're going to conferences, learning, we're sort of in that if the ether is one way we can drift, but the other way we can drift is when we're always just doing and doing and doing and doing and Tommy just named it like we spend an ex- extraordinary amount of, of money and time on things rather than kind of living in the middle of these concepts. And, and I think mm-hmm. the key thing that a leader can do, there's there's sort of three things that we talk about, but the the three types of what we would call conversions. And I think what the leader needs to do when they're leading from the middle is be the key converter. And I think that the, kind of the easiest way to, to think about that is, is first of all, to, to convert what we are currently doing into knowledge. And this to me is that confronting practice piece. Like step one is sort of assessing where we're at as a group. So that's that key knowledge conversion piece when we're leading from the middle. So that is creating clarity, co-defining and co-describing with our teachers what it looks like in the classroom, what we want it to see and using that to assess where we're at. So that's that first key conversion. The second key conversion when we're leading from the middle is really thinking about, okay, now that we've sort of learned that we have some 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 gaps in what we're doing, it's now converting that into action. You talked. Uh, we've talked a little bit about, for example, the BC Reporting Order. We t- yeah, I know we'll talk about this a little yeah. bit later, mm-hmm. but I, I think one of this one of the key things that a leader does in this part part of the conversion is is really lowering the threshold for access for adults, and differentiating for adults, as we said, and making it easy for them to try new things. And also, I'll talk a little bit about how we engage people in that process. But then the last piece is is really converting what we did into impact and making some of those connections. So when we're Mm -hmm. leading from the middle, we're really being that we're creating those conditions for conversions. And that's that initial conversion of sort of what we do into what we know, and then moving back into what we know into what we need to do, and then and back into that knowledge around impact. Mm-hmm. And those are the key things to me. And when we drift too far into the problem or too far into the solution, I think that's when we start to get lost and really feel like we're spinning our wheels right. and not making a difference. So that to me is what leading from the middle really yeah. looks like.
0: Yeah, no, I love that. I think it's, uh... I mean, I couldn't say it any better than you did, uh, just in terms of not drift. I love that idea of drift, too, because I think it's just gradual, right? You don't, it's not something you do immediately or it happens in a moment, but you just kind of drift and get immersed into the problem and you can't see the solution or you get so focused on the solution that you're missing the details of what the issues actually are and the details of, again, going back to impact, how we're actually going to change things and what measurable. Um, aspects will we notice in in terms of what we're doing so i yeah no i i think that's a that's a that's a great way of putting it Uh, because you know it's catchy too when you say lead from the middle i'm like okay kale what does that mean because that can mean a lot of different things right so i love love the way that you phrase that so you you mentioned the bc reporting order and i want to finish up our conversation with um you know just talking about resistance because that's unavoidable right i mean it's it's uh and and we're seeing it here in, in British Columbia. I, I did a bonus episode a few weeks ago on the reporting order. And I think, you know, in fairness, uh, I, I support what the province is doing, but I think they messed it up a little bit. And there's some things that I critiqued, and I won't get into the details, listeners. You've listened to that episode already. But we're seeing it here with this change in reporting order and the way that people are resisting. Uh, it's only been out for a couple of years, but people now all of a sudden are coming out of the woodwork saying, what, what is going on here? Anyway, um, rant over. <laughs> We've got... <laughs> we've got this resistance everywhere. Anytime a leader is trying to implement something new or trying to change for impact and all of that, we, we're we gonna see the resistance and clearly the uniqueness of the individual person who's resisting has to be considered. But, but given that, when you think about sort of generically, um, handling resistors, if you will, and that's maybe not a fair term to use, handling, but you you get resistance, you get the pushback on the ideas, you know that this is going to be good for kids, you know that it's going to change the culture. How do we we handle resistors and still maintain that relationship, uh, that sort of positive professional relationship with them, even though we are disagreeing with their pushback?
1: You know, it's just such a great question. It's probably the number one or number two (laughs) question that we tend (laughs) to get asked, and I... You know it's interesting because uh, i i alluded to the fact earlier that i was i went to the business innovation factory and i I was very lucky to meet a a man called ken gordon he has the coolest title on earth he is the chief storyteller for continuum which is a global design firm they designed the reebok pump the target shopping cart and all this Mm -hmm. sort of stuff anyways but it, it was quite interesting because the, as part of the conference, they really forced you to network. And, uh, you know, we always say we want to develop networks at conference, mm-hmm. but they actually mm-hmm. pushed you into this. So I, I got a chance to sit with Ken and we've actually become really good friends. And he said something that, that I think has resonated with me. He said, I'm not here to tell schools how to change. He said, I'm, I'm not an educator. He, he said, the, but I think that what we need to do is look at when people want to change and see what we can learn and i thought well that's an interesting concept it's a human-centered approach and when you look at covid um boy oh boy we changed on a dime in about 15 minutes i was laughed because if someone would have come down the hallway on valentine's day in 2020 and said hey tom kill you know what we should do is we should all go virtual for all our kids we would have said you are nuts and yet a month, six weeks later, we did. And <laughs> and so so in truth, I think a, a piece that we need to look at when it comes to change is sometimes like I, I know Simon Sinek talks about, you know, start with the why. Mm -hmm. And I think we actually have to go one level deeper than that. And that's start with the who, because everyone's why is a little bit different. There's the, again, morally, when it comes to grading or different Mm -hmm. practices or engagement, we know that this is good for kids, Mm -hmm. but I wonder if it's okay sometimes for us to think a little bit about how is this good for adults? What are some of the things that we can start to connect to in terms of solving a challenge or a need for adults? Mm-hmm. And so I kind of have there's a model that I think about it's it's need it, see it, start it, show it. And I think the first key piece is we ask teachers to connect their content to student context all the time. In fact, mm-hmm. we're, we're kind of mad when teachers don't make this math relevant, you know, we right, sort of right. stand but But how often do we as leaders make our content the content of strategic planning school improvement how often do we actually connect that to teacher context and their need and so to me that's that's kind of step one is really understanding the the human side of this like when we look at all the changes that we're looking at for assessment and grading the 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 research behind them is crystal clear it's it's what's good for kids but i think what we keep missing over and over is but how do we help this be good for adults too? Like that's a piece that I think we have to investigate and co-create with the adults. The second yeah. thing is the see it piece, right? And and that's that as I was talking about earlier is co-creating, if we were doing assessment at the highest level, um, what would it actually lead to for our Mm. students? What would it lead to for our parents? What would it lead to for our teachers? So that we together start to have a little bit of of common understanding and language. And then in in actual fact, in many ways, making the thinking of our educators observable, just like we're asking our educators to make the thinking of our students Mm. observable. So that's step two. And then step three is the startup piece. And that's that lowering the threshold for adults and giving them voice and choice and opportunity. We Again, we talk about giving voice and choice to students, but I think when it comes to resistance, a lot of the time is, is how do we lower the threshold and give educators the opportunity to say, you know what, my getting started with assessment, this is what it's going to do in my context, let me try this. And then the last piece I think that we have to insist upon Is that we show it. In other words, we're sharing with each other what's working because Mm -hmm. we were there. I am. I'm. I'm just a firm believer. Tom and Eve alluded to this earlier, and this may be unpopular. I think we have enough money in the system. I actually think we have enough time. I think we just have to look at how we're using our money and our time. And one of the things that I know is, and you've traveled Mm -hmm. everywhere in the world too people are working on the same things everywhere mm-hmm. and yet we're almost working independently on these. There's got to be a better way. So to me, a, a real, the way to look at, at resistance in many ways is recognize resistors aren't resistors. They're just people. And we've all been resistors. That's what I love is when we're resistors, we're like the freedom fighter. We're the yeah. hands. So oh, yeah. right. Yeah, but when other mean. people are resisting, they're the Darth Vader. <laughs> but we've all been resistors too. So number one yeah. is think of yeah. people as humans. But then if we think of that, need it, see it, start it, show it philosophy. Mm-hmm. I think we really can start to get to the human side of change. And I'm not saying that's going to eliminate um, the idea of resistance, but I think it can really help when we start to empathize with the people that are going to be designing and implementing the change in the process.
0: So, so true. Uh, that that really resonated with me as well, because, when you know, we talk a lot about making sure that what we implement is both efficient and effective. And I often remind people that those aren't just terms effective is about the students, efficient is for the adults. Like it has to be efficient. You, yes. Descriptive feedback, for example, wouldn't it be great if all students could just get pages of feedback on how to improve their learning, but that's not realistic for a teacher. There's burnout that's going to happen there. So you have to be mindful that routines are efficient for the adults and effective for the students. If we lean one way or the other, We're probably going to run into some sort of challenge, but if we find, if we stay in the middle, we will probably be able to, uh, to, to navigate through that in a, in a much more, again, balanced way that allows the adults to feel like there's not an unreasonable expectation of what, what's possible in the classroom. So I absolutely do love that. Um, listeners, again, the book is called, uh, navigating the leadership drift with, uh, Co-authored with uh, Doctor Michael McDowell, you should. I'll uh, have a. I'll have a link in the show notes for that as well. So Kale, we're going to finish up here with two questions on the lighter side. Well, maybe not the lighter side of the first one, but definitely the last one. Um, but we're going to talk a little bit about generally speaking. Uh, the the first question is uh, one you can take in any direction you want to go, and it's a pretty simple question. It's just educationally speaking, what gets you out of bed in the morning, like what gets you fired up.
1: I think honestly, Tom, just what we just talked about is is I we hear over and over about there's not enough time and there's not enough money and i I think the first you know i i I talk to leaders a lot about that and they always talk about we don't have time and i get it but i think Mm -hmm. a question that we need to ask ourselves is and we need to ask people when they say i don't have enough time is to ask just simply if you had more time what would you be doing differently What would you be doing differently if you had more time because we can start there i think so the the time and the money concept to me i think we have to look at the initiatives the things that we're trying in our classrooms and really think about the impact piece so i i I really i think that's what gets me going all the time is is i think we can really focus in on impact i think we can be as you just said more efficient with how we do these things and i think in the end it not only makes it better for students but i'm really big on making it better for adults too and i think that's a piece that is often overlooked we you know we say that you know teachers and leaders they they have to be in this for kids of course they do but i think they also Mm -hmm. we want to be in it a little bit so that we have a better day and i think that's a piece that gets me out of bed is is really thinking about how can we make it so that our adults are having a good day too and, and it's it's not about you know just adults being happy that's too general to me it's it's really about adults really feeling competent and I think that's the piece that really allows people to be to be happy in their work so I think that's what really gets me out of bed in the morning is how do we help our adults in our building feel like they're making a difference and, that, and that's what I really love to do yeah um,
0: it's about priorities right I mean yeah. when people say I don't have enough time I mean you're doing something you're filling your minutes with something. That means you haven't prioritized that. Okay, maybe you haven't prioritized it to now, but maybe it's time to reprioritize. Is there is there ever enough money? I don't know. When I started my career 33 years ago, people were saying there's not enough time, not enough money. It's a matter of priority. There probably is enough money given the budgets we have. We just haven't prioritized it in a way that will have the impact we want it to have. But uh, some places there may not be enough money. So if you disagree with Kale, his Twitter handle is at Berk You can tweet him if you disagree <laughs> and want to push back. <laughs> i'm just teasing uh but it's true i think it i think it has to do with priorities you know because people say that to me a lot too with the assessment stuff oh i don't have time for that i don't have time for this and i don't have time for that it's not the majority of people of course but there are people who come at me and kind of say you know i don't have time for that it's like well what do you have time for like you are doing something your days are filled like if every innovative practice or every new initiative or everything that will positively impact kids you don't have time for then what are you doing with your time and that's something it's a really hard question i think though kale for educators to answer to ask themselves is what am i prepared to stop doing
1: yeah i think that's a key too tom is is we have to help people with that too and yeah and yes you're right with and certainly hey i grew up in rural districts and all Mm -hmm. the rest and and finances are they can really be a challenge i think what i'm sure. more meaning is, is know, this I'm idea that it. let's but i just want to make sure that everyone's clear yeah. about that that yeah. it is looking at what we're doing from an impact perspective first let's mm-hmm. not chase the next program the next right. bit of technology right. let's stop and go what's our vision of the learner that we want to have mm-hmm. and work yeah. backwards from there so at right. least we can be a little bit more efficient with what yeah I, I
0: i talked to districts and, and schools all the time to like stop buying a new grading program until you know exactly what you want that pr- program yes. to do. Because if you don't know what questions to ask the vendor, you're going to waste thousands of dollars on that program. Exactly. So live with what you got. So I love that. Yep. Okay, let's, let's end on a lighter note. Um, you know, we were talking before we hit record about our... our our love of food and how the exercise That's is really just to counter the calories that we consume absolutely um you have f- for a long part of your life lived in kamloops uh, yep. but of course now you're you've got a, also got a spot in victoria so we're going to go to two places hey, On This hey. one, i love food and you live in kamloops in victoria so uh two places i'm familiar with but i don't spend a lot of time in so next time i'm in kamloops or next time i'm in, in victoria where's your favorite place to eat in both cities
1: so Kamloops, it's a place called Underbelly. Uh, it's a, a kind of a, a sort of a hole in the wall place, but nice. super cool and kitschy. Uh, lots of uh, great different uh, cocktails for those who enjoy those. I might be one of them. Yep. Uh, and a, a whole bunch of different varieties of food. And here in Victoria, it depends what you're looking for. For breakfast, there's a place called Jam that we absolutely love. And for dinner, um, right on the Inner Harbor here is a, a place called Boom and Batten where we... Uh, they like norm peterson i think they're getting to know me a little bit more and more there so <laughs> so yeah check those places out right. they're always uh they're always good places to hang out and uh, okay and so i'm
0: in i'm in cam i go to underbelly what do i order
1: oh well their pizzas are ridiculously okay. good but okay. they have a variety of pork belly and things like that well yeah, i kind of figured
0: that by the name <laughs>
1: yeah, you know it. that's it's super good <laughs>
0: absolutely and then i go to jam what's what's uh for breakfast, what it what, was the go-to there? The
1: blueberry pancakes are about this tall. I had nice. them yesterday. It nice. is a it, Trust me, Tom, I had to go for a little bit longer run yesterday, <laughs> like about 500 <laughs> miles to burn those calories. And when you go to Boom and Batten, the halibut's unbelievable. The halibut, yeah, you can't go wrong with halibut.
0: Um, love it, love it. Listeners, you can and should follow Kale. Uh, Instagram, Twitter, the handle is at Burke Learns. Uh, Facebook and LinkedIn, you'll find Kale there as well. Uh, www.berklearns.com. I'll have links in the show notes for all of that, plus the uh, the book, uh, and we'll make sure we get that all linked up for you. Kale, uh, great to see you, my friend. Uh, <laughs> stay strong on the road. Uh, enjoy those cocktails and food, and uh, hopefully our paths <laughs> cross face to face one time. Thanks for doing this, man. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com podcasts Now let's get back to the episode.
0: In Assessment Corner this week, I want to remind you not to underestimate the importance of being clear about the purpose of any assessment. Now simply put, in advance of any assessment, we would be wise to ask ourselves, Why? Why do we want this information? What do we intend to do with it? Now at the classroom level, this is how we determine the formative and summative purpose, of course. The why of any assessment essentially tells you what you should do with it. If you say something is for practice, then do that, and leave grading off the table. If you say it's for verification, then do that, and that's grading. Remember, labeling something formative does not make it so. An assessment is only formative when it's used formatively, and longtime listeners, you've heard me say that dozens and dozens of times. So at the classroom level, be clear on your purpose. The question isn't really, should I grade homework? The question is, what purpose does the homework serve? And more often than not, when we answer that question, we mean it serves for practice. So in advance of any assessment, just ask yourself, why? Why do I want this information? But the same holds true for school-wide or district-wide assessments principals and district leaders need to also be clear on why the evidence from district-wide or school-wide assessments is needed. What is the purpose? There are plenty of purposes for district-wide or school-wide assessments that can be part of an overall strategy, but it's important that we're clear so that teachers, families, and, and most importantly, students, so that they're clear on why time is being taken to complete the assessments. Why are we using or why did we develop these school-wide reading assessments that we administer three times a year? Are we measuring growth, achievement, both? Are we measuring the effectiveness of our instruction? Now, I know sometimes people flinch when you say that, using assessment results to measure the effectiveness of instruction, because some people will say, well, that's not really fair, Tom, because you know the effectiveness of instruction is based on students and students have their own minds and they may not take the assessment seriously. I get that. But from those same people, I never seem to have an answer to that question. Okay, you know, fair enough, but how do you suggest we measure the effectiveness of our instruction or or measure the effectiveness of how we've prioritized our learning goals? I'm not naive to the fact that data can be misused, and in some places, it's horrific the way teachers get beat up in public and all of that. I get it, and I can only imagine the intense pressure some teachers feel. I really do. However, that doesn't mean teachers become immune to the measurement of effectiveness. Whether we like it or not, we are answerable to the public, so if there are areas we need to improve upon, we need to find that out. I think the same holds true for principals, and I think the same holds true for superintendents. It's not just a teacher thing. We all are accountable to the public, and even in a private school situation, you've got tuition-paying parents and alumni and all of the pressures that come with that. So there is a level of accountability. There just needs to be an artful way to go about it. But back to the point. We need to know why, articulate that why to all involved, and stick to that purpose, The why for any assessment can often be sourced from the question you're trying to answer. Like that's a good place to start with data collection in general. Just just what question are we unable to answer given the data that we have currently available to us? Once you have that question, you'll know what to assess, how to assess it, and the format the information needs to be in so you can answer the question you've identified. For example, you might ask, you know, what percentage of our students are reading at or above grade level? So we're looking at a continuum there. We need to make sure we have grade level texts and adaptive assessments and things that we can do to to try to measure that. We may ask a question, is our students reading comprehension the same, whether they read fiction or nonfiction text, right? So we need comparable results. We need to look at the types of texts we're choosing. We may ask a different question, like uh, to what degree can our students apply the fundamentals of math to more complex problems? And we want to then create an assessment that looks at complexity or are we wanting to create performance tasks to see how authentic our students' learning is in science or something like that. Those are just some examples of questions you might ask. We might even ask the question, is it necessary for all students to complete all questions? Now, if you're a very long-time listener, (laughs) you may recall my bonus episode with Tom Guskey a couple of years ago about large-scale assessment and standardized tests where we discussed some of those alternatives. Like if we want to know how our students are doing and not drill everything down to the individual student, we could create an assessment where each student in each grade level completes a portion of the assessment, enough of a portion to provide an adequate sample so that together in its totality, all of the students contribute enough responses so that we could sufficiently analyze the results. Those results would be aggregated sort of at the school or the district level. They could even be done anonymously. Students don't have to put their names on them. So there's no temptation to compare teachers or to drill down to one student. I know some some might think, like, why would we have individual students complete an assessment if we're not going to examine the results from the individual? But honestly, I don't really see a lot of utility with large-scale assessment in day-to-day classroom instruction or day-to-day student learning. Now, it's okay to disagree with me at that point. Like, this is not an absolute. It's just my perspective or my opinion. I just don't see large-scale assessment once a year, kind of twice a year, three times a year results really driving day-to-day classroom assessment. I think I think every level of, of assessment has its place, but it should stay there. And I mean, that's how I was schooled back in the day by Rick Stiggins, Jan Shapui, and the rest of the ATI team. And I still kind of think that's a wise way to approach it, right? So if you have large-scale state or provincial assessments, they want results for large-scale decision-making. So if you give me four to five years or six years of trending on those large scale assessments, then any state or province can analyze and say, is our curriculum, is our assessment, are we serving our constituents? Is public school the great equalizer? What whatever you want to do from a large scale perspective? Do we have the right curriculum? Are we, are we, are we emphasizing the right things? From a school or a district assessment, that's for school or district decision making. So we'd look at the results from a district perspective or a school perspective, say, how are we doing? And then classroom assessment is for classroom decisions. And I think when you look at a balanced assessment system like that, for me, that's the most favorable way to go. Again, you can disagree with that. I'm not arguing whether you can use large-scale assessment for classroom decisions. I'm arguing whether or not you should. And I, and I don't really think you should. So the argument between can and should, some of you might recall that open from an episode back in April. But my main point here is that we make sound assessment decisions if we begin by asking, what specifically do we want to know? Why are we gathering this evidence in the first place? So as you head into this new school year, make being crystal clear about your assessment purpose a goal, because determining your purpose of assessment, something I do think gets overlooked at times, brings all other subsequent decisions about what to do in the classroom, how to design our assessments, and what to do with the results, brings all of that into focus. Okay. That's it for this week. A reminder that we'll be back in three weeks. August 28th will be the next episode. Then we'll go every other week from there. Remember to follow the podcast and or me on Twitter or wait, I I guess it's not Twitter anymore. Um, follow me on X, (laughs) X. What's up with that? Like, honestly, come on, Elon. Jeez. All right. On X, at Tom Shimmer, at Tom Shimmer Pod. Instagram, it's at Tom Shimmer, at Tom Shimmer Podcast. TikTok, at Tom Shimmer Podcast. You can also check out the YouTube channel as well. Uh, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com, if you've got questions for Assessment Corner, or if you have any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. And a reminder check out the show notes for the links for the upcoming professional learning events I mentioned in the opening, as well as my new book, Redefining Student Accountability. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, but a rating and review on any platform will help grow the podcast's reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Happy summer, everyone.